much. All right, good morning. So last week, uh, just to kind of recap, we were uh, finished up our discussion of the shepherds, and we talked about Jesus being presented in the temple, right? He visits the temple, and we talked about Mary being at the temple. Anybody just really quick remember why Mary's uh, at the temple? Herself personally, not just to bring her son. You remember? Yes, sacrifice. And why was there a sacrifice needed? Because she was unclean. Yeah, right. Yeah, she did dedicate the firstborn, but she was also unclean, right? Uh, She gives birth to a son, so there's a period of time where she is ceremonially unclean. So she has to uh, go to the temple to offer a sacrifice. Now, typically, it would be a lamb and a pigeon or a turtle dove, but Mary and Joseph bring what? You guys remember? Instead of a lamb and a turtle dove, what what or a pigeon, what do Joseph and Mary bring? Two, birds. two yeah, yeah, two. Uh, bel- Partridge in a pear tree, right? Uh huh. Yeah, we're getting to that time anyway, right? Um, two young, uh, basically, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. We don't really know, and that's supposed to tell us that what? What does that tell us about Mary and Joseph? Yeah, they're poor, right? Or they're of lower means, right? So in any case, and and, um, also something I didn't mention last week, but worth noting that Jesus also has a redemption price as well. So Joseph and Mary pay that redemption price, because remember, though the firstborn son that opens the womb is called holy to the Lord. And we talked about how the reason being is because that ties back to the Exodus, right? When God, uh, through the angel of death, destroyed and killed all the firstborn. Not only of all the livestock, but also of the people as well. So uh, God uh, requires that the firstborn be redeemed. All right, so let's go to uh, Luke 22, I'm sorry, Luke 2, 25. And we talked about also about Simeon. We're going to actually cover Simeon again a little bit because we didn't get all the way through him or what he, uh, didn't get through what he said. Retread a little ground and um, talk about him and Anna. So Luke 2, 25 through 28, anybody um, would uh, volunteer us to read this this morning, either from your own Bible or right up there, which you see on the screen. Thank you, Jonathan. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms as God and said. Okay, so Simeon. There's conjecture about who this person is. A lot of non-biblical, some non-biblical stuff trying to connect him on on who he is. Uh, some people say that he is the, uh, either the I can't remember, I think it's maybe the grandfather, maybe the father of Gamaliel. Uh, there's no basis in history for any of that. It's just conjecture. You know, a lot of times in biblical, uh, in biblical history, people try to put things together. And it's good to try to put things together, but sometimes it's just kind of just simple conjecture. But anyway, we don't know who Simeon was, except here what the text actually says. Right? We do know that this name Simeon we've seen before in the Bible. Where have we seen this? Yeah, he's the son of Jacob. Right? 
He's a son of Jacob, one of the sons of um, one of the sons of, of Leah, if my memory serves. And uh, yeah, so Simeon. So we've seen his name before. Uh, there is actually an apostle who his name alternatively could be said or spelled like this: Simon. Right? Simon's also called Simeon um, in Acts 15. Interestingly enough, in 2 Peter, when you see start off in 2 Peter, you'll see Peter introduce himself as Simeon Peter, which is kind of an interesting little note as, as well. Uh, so, uh, Simeon, he's the, uh, he's the second son of Jacob and the second son of Leah. He... Uh, his name sounds like the Hebrew for herd. Now, I don't know if his name has that kind of connotation here, but it would certainly be appropriate if it was the case because Simeon has been spending his life doing what? Waiting. Yeah, waiting. Waiting for what, man? The Messiah, the Christ. He's been waiting for the Messiah. He's been waiting for the Christ, right? And I'm sure along with that waiting, he's just not simply waiting, but as a as we should do, as some of us do, uh, when we are waiting, we what? We pray, right? We seek the Lord as we wait. And I'm sure Simeon's life was devoted to prayer and the worship of the Lord as he was waiting for this consolation of Israel, right? The Bible says here that he is righteous and devout, He's not perfect, but he lives uprightly before the Lord, right? He lives in awe of God. This is helpful because as we move through the story of Christ, as I'm sure you're familiar, but it bears repeating, most of Israel will reject Jesus. Most of them will reject him, which Simeon goes on to note, as we'll see in a moment. And it will almost seem like, does anybody believe in Christ? Does anybody believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Right? Is anybody have a have a have a hope that's based in our Lord and, and is eagerly anticipating the Lord's return? You know, Luke eighteen, uh, there is the parable that uh, is introduced is that Jesus told them a parable about how they ought to always to pray and not to lose heart. And remember, do you remember how that parable ends? He says, And when he comes, will he find faith on the earth? Man, that resonates with me. Because when you look around sometimes, it really, it's like a legit question, isn't it? If Jesus comes back, is he going to find faith on the earth? But we know our Lord is faithful. He will per- persevere his saints in the faith, right? But in our humanness, we can look around and see sometimes like, wow, is there anybody really believing? In any case, so moving on. So he's waiting for the Messiah. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's what that means. Okay, There is a theme in Scripture of waiting for the salvation of the Lord, especially in the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, Genesis, uh, Genesis 49, 18. After the prophecy about Dan, Jacob says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. In Psalm 25, 5, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Psalm 119, verses 166 and 174, talks about waiting. In 166, verse 166, I hope for your salvation, O Lord. In verse 177, and uh, do your commandments. In verse 174, I wait for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Isaiah 25, 9. 
It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, we have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Micah 7, 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So I'll just reading off a few verses where you have this, this thrust, this, this attitude, this expectation of, of waiting. This attitude of waiting. Those in God's people are waiting for Him to save them. And of course He does. He does national deliverance, right? But the big issue... <laughs> The big issue we get back to again and again is their deliverance from their own sin. Right? And they are waiting for that to be done. Right? And if you are a person, an Israelite, a devout Israelite, you're keenly attuned to this because what do you have to do on a regular basis in order to demonstrate your faith that God will forgive you of your sin? What do you have to do? You have to offer a sacrifice over and over and over and over and over again. We need to appreciate that, right? They have to practice this regularly. And there has to be something in their heart that's saying, when will we be free from this sin, ultimately? When will we be delivered from it? Consolation. What's another word for consolation? Comfort, right? Comfort, right? How does uh, Isaiah's second half of his book start off? And it's a little bit of a misleading because it's not exactly half. It's a little past half. Yeah, comfort, comfort my people, Isaiah 40. It kind of starts what's considered the second half of the book. right? You have Isaiah 1 through 39 and Isaiah 40 through 66. You start off the second half of the second portion of the book. Comfort, comfort my people. And it goes on to talk about how God will comfort his people. And you will find four songs in there called servant songs, which are specifically written about the one who will bring comfort to his people, and that's the Messiah. So, all that the Messiah is and all he will accomplish is Israel's consolation. Notice something else about this after the consolation of Israel. What does the Bible also say about Simeon? What's special about him here? He was righteous. He was righteous. Yeah, the Holy Spirit's on him, right? The Holy Spirit is on him. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people for a specific task and then leave and depart from them. Right? They, they didn't have what New Testament believers have, is the constant presence of the Holy Spirit, which we take for granted all of the time. And we actually don't realize all of the time the access to God that we have through the Holy Spirit, the actual empowerment we have through the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit here is upon Simeon, uh, especially for a special purpose, but you you have the idea that maybe it's it's just possibly remaining on him. Right? Uh, He seems to function here as a prophet. Not only explains the knowledge that he's got, but it's also going to explain the prophecy he's going, to, he's going to shortly give. And so what did the Holy Spirit reveal to Simeon? What did he reveal? He was the yeah. You see that, guys? He would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And that's something I want to um, kind of push 
on us, make sure that we get in our heads, when we see this word Christ, right? This word Christ is Greek for something, right? It's, it's a term. It has a definition. Christ means anointed one, right? It's just the Greek word for anointed one. And in the Hebrew, you have the Messiah, and he's the anointed one. So when you hear Christ, think Messiah, because that's what the Jews think, right? That's the, the Jewish audience. That's what they think. That's what they're looking forward to. That's what their hope is. Can you imagine a promise like this? Can you imagine what a great, fantastic promise that this is? That this Simeon, who is one of the one of there are many, but not as many as the people, devout Israelites in the land of Israel, waiting for their consolation, waiting for their Messiah, and God gives him this incredible promise that he'll actually get to behold him. That in this life, with his own eyeballs, he will get to look on the hope of Israel, on his own hope. I don't know about any of you, but that would excite me. I would be eagerly anticipating that. So, why does it matter about this Messiah? Why does it matter that we keep in our heads, when you see this word Christ, we think of this term Messiah? Well, because the Old Testament itself, right? This is all the revelation we have before the Gospels, right? It's written and organized in such a way to uphold and sustain the Messianic hope. I've mentioned this once before, many, 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 many months ago, and uh, repeated here. There's a quote as James Hamilton. He's a prof down at Southern Sem. He said in an article, "From start to finish, the Old Testament is a messianic document written from a messianic perspective to sustain a messianic hope." And then there, I just answered my own fill in the blanks, didn't I? Yeah. That was I. I knew I was doing that, but. So, I won't write all that out. You guys know what that is, hopefully. me. So, here's the point. The Old Testament is written as a document about the Messiah. That's what it is. Okay. I, I like to be able to try to, to try to get the trees, right? The details, but I like the forest too. Right? Because I could at least kind of figure out where I am and the big picture. The Old Testament is a messianic document. It's all about the Messiah. It's all about him. And it's written from a messianic perspective, meaning that it's, it's written with him in mind. It's written with him in mind. It's written with him as the goal. Right? And it's to sustain a messianic hope. When the Old Testament, now, and I want to say that in the Old Testament, right, there are books that while, of course, you know, like people in the Old Testament are still living like the prophets, right, what they have before is authoritative, right? They know that. They're aware of that, right? The Torah and, and you have some, the history as, as well that they had access to. But when the Old Testament is, is finally put together, the arguments made, and I would completely agree with this, and this makes so much sense, 
when you study the Old Testament, is that it's written, it's put together, and it's organized in such a way to sustain faithful people's belief that the Messiah is going to come. The whole book, the whole Old Testament is written so that those who are trusting that the Messiah will come, that it buoys, that it sustains, that it drives all their hope. All of it. Does that make sense, what I'm saying there? Which, that's a good point of application that we could park on for a minute, because if the Old Testament is written for believers, and I wouldn't say exclusively to Israel either, because while the majority of it is written in Hebrew, right, there are those who come from outside of Israel, right, who believe. If that, if the Old Testament is a messianic document written from a messianic perspective to sustain the messianic hope, what can it do for us? You agree? The same thing. The Old Testament can do the exact same thing. It tells us about our God. It tells us about what humanity did to ruin the creation, right? But all still part of God's plan that he sent a redeemer to redeem his people and that this Messiah will come and that despite Israel's constant disobedience, did that sway God's plan? Did that frustrate God's plan? Not at all. It was right on schedule. And in the New Testament, guys, when the New Testament comes around, the New Testament time, and Jesus appears, this whole book, the Old Testament, goes to show that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is about whom all of this is written. That he's the one. That he's the Messiah. That's what the Gospels are all about. Trying to show us slow of heart and slow to believe that the Old Testament hope, the Messianic hope, points to one person in particular, and the Gospel says that's Jesus of Nazareth. That's who it is. Simeon was informed by the Holy Spirit that he would see the Messiah, right? But his knowledge and expectation of the Messiah, where did it come from? The Old Testament. Right? He wasn't just some blank slate and God just went, you know, and just beamed knowledge into his head. He was informed by God through the scriptures. He recognized the Messiah. He knew what the Messiah was to do simply by reading his Bible. That's how he got it. That's how he knew it. I was a quote from John Salehammer, the uh, article called The Messiah in the Hebrew Bible. It's a little lengthy, but I want to read it because it wanted to point the application I want to push. When the future came at a specific time and place, there were people waiting for it. There were those, like Simeon and Anna, who understood it in terms of the Old Testament prophetic vision. In other words, the prophet's vision was such that it preserved and carried with it a people who both understood the prophets and were there waiting for the fulfillment of their vision. By falling in line with that vision, the New Testament writers showed that they accepted the Old Testament not only as pre-interpreted, but they were also in fundamental agreement with its interpretation. And he goes on, he talks about how the Pentateuch uh, presents the Messiah and how the prophets in the writing interpret 
and exposit it. So the Old Testament starts off with the Pentateuch, and you have this concept and the idea of the Messiah, this person. And in the history, you have that explained out and exposited more. And then in the prophets, you have that. The prophets, you have that. And the writings, you have that. So the Old Testament, you can think of as a sermon. Where you have the main point at the, at the beginning, and then you have the exposition of that throughout the Old Testament. And it's written in such a way so that people would actually believe it. And that it would actually affect people's lives so that when the fulfillment actually came, there were people there waiting for it. And, that's, and we know it worked because Simeon and Anna were waiting for it. The, the whole Old Testament is trying to sustain this messianic hope. And the whole Old Testament exposits who the Messiah is and what's he going to do. The Gospels reveal who this Messiah is. And the rest of the New Testament exposits and comments on the Gospels. Who this Jesus is and exactly what he accomplished. I mean, we could get justification by faith if we read the Gospels. We could get that. But how much more is it explained in books, say, like Romans? Or books, say, like Galatians? Or we learn about what Christ has done and his benefits and how we're united into one body from books like Ephesians. Or how we can have joy in Christ like Philippians. And how the church is supposed to live and work, we can get that through things like what? The pastoral epistles. Or we could talk about how Christ is the goal and the point and is greater than all the Old Testament before it. We get that from books like Hebrews. You see the point? The New Testament exposits and interprets the Gospels, and it's written, I believe, to sustain our hope. If the Old Testament is to explain and exposit the Messianic hope, saying, people of God, the Messiah is coming, wait patiently, this is how you're to live in regard, in light of it, the New Testament does the same thing. It tells us what Jesus did, what he accomplished, and how we are to live in light of it. And it's also to sustain our hope because guess what? We are in a similar position as the people of God in the Old Testament, aren't we? Because who are we waiting for? We're waiting for the Messiah to come back, aren't we? The Bible is written to point to the Messiah and it's to sustain our hope while we're waiting for him. Now, if you get that in your bloodstream... That's going to prioritize your life really quick, isn't it? This whole evil system. What's 1 John say? Chapter 5. We know we are from God and the whole world lies into the power of who? The evil one. This whole world system is designed to crush that hope. To get us looking at everything else except him. Despair, hopelessness, selfishness, lust, go on and on and on. And men, you know how effective Satan can be in that, don't you? 
But we have a God who has revealed himself to us in language that we can understand. And has loved us so much that he has shown us how faithful he is because we have all the text before us to tell us how much he's already fulfilled his promises, hasn't he? Dan Phillips, a pastor in the Houston area, posted something recently and it just it sticks with me. He says, faith, this is sort of a paraphrase, faith is not a leap, biblical faith is not a leap in the dark, biblical faith is a leap out of the dark. Amen. This book tells us how life really is. And that there is a God-man who is the fulfillment of all of the promises beforehand and how he fulfills them and how he will fulfill them. And he's coming back. And in light of that, we are to live with him with all of our might. Does the Bible sustain that hope for you men? Does it sustain the hope that this Messiah, this one that was promised long beforehand, that he is your Savior? that he has forgiven your sins, that you live in communion with him, and that you will inherit the kingdom prepared beforehand from the foundation of the world prepared by the Father, that you will inherit it with him, not because of anything that you've done, but because of solely of what he's done. And then in light of that, all of these fool's goal that the world tries to give us now, we can set aside and say, no, thank you. I know what my king has been promised and I know I will inherit it with him so I will gladly suffer for the name and I will gladly turn aside all of the trite little baubles that the world tries to offer. I hope so. I hope so. But enough of the preaching. Uh, get back uh, to the text. Any, any thoughts on that before we keep moving? This scripture came to mind and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. First John 3, yeah. Absolutely. That, that Tattoo that on your brain. Yeah, Michael, and I'll get to you, Jeremy, in a second. Uh, a quote from Alistair Begg. Uh, we find Christ in all the scriptures. In the Old Testament, he is predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. In Acts, he is preached. In the Epistles, he is explained. And in Revelation, he is expected. Yeah. That helps when you're reading your Bible, right? It helps you get the big point, right? And it helps reveal the wonderful things that are revelation that's in the Word of God. And it reveals this great and mighty Savior. You know, everybody, everybody's got a favorite Piper quote, right? Mine's a little bit more off. Um, he said, and I, I love this quote, he says, The Bible's not boring. You are. Jeremy. Uh, just a question. Who, who gave that on the whiteboard? Uh, James Hamilton. There is a uh, there's an article you can actually look it up. Southern Seminary has their old like it's one of their journals. The uh, the title of the article is um, let me look it up here, guys, for you. The skull crushing seed of the woman. Uh, interbiblical interpretation of Genesis three fifteen. So the article is about that. So you could look that up. It's it's good stuff. Any other uh, thoughts before we proceed? All right. So he came in the spirit to the temple. So the spirit led him and said, Hey, Simeon, go to the temple today. I wonder if he told him what he was going to see. But he led him to the temple, right? And he brought in the child Jesus. I don't know how he knew. 
But that somehow, some way, maybe the Spirit told him, this is him. This is the Messiah. And he took him up in his arms. Now, can you imagine that for a minute? He held the creator of the world in his arms. He held the thrice holy God in the book of Isaiah in his arms. He held the angel of the Lord, who you can make an argument for that is the pre-incarnate Christ, in his arms. He held his Savior in his arms. He held the realization of everything, of his hopes, in his arms. God's gifts sometimes are just beyond lavish, aren't they? They're just, they're they're way more than you could ever hope or dream or expect. Let that just kind of percolate. And he blessed God and said, now, the song that we'll see here, it's it's known in in Christian history as the Nuke uh, Dimitus. Nuke Dimitus, you don't need to know that. It's just a nice little fact to kind of throw out there. And then we're going to go to 29 through 32. Someone read that for us. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Okay. Thank you, brother. So now... He's thanking the Lord that now he can die in peace. Right? This turmoil that he's had, this expectation, this anxiety, this waiting, this anticipation, it's all settled in his heart. And now he can depart in peace. According to your word. So again, we have this, we have again the faithfulness of God to do what he says. You could hit on that until the kingdom comes. You know, like, God will do what he says. And he will do exactly like he said he would do. So that simple people like you and me won't miss it. Aren't you glad God doesn't speak in riddles to believers? Not unbelievers, he will. We'll read about that. Better yet, called parables. But he does exactly what he says. For my eyes have seen what? Your salvation. Your salvation. Old Testament talks about seeing the salvation of the Lord. Moses says it right before the sea parts. Stand back and see the salvation of the Lord. Right? In Second Chronicles 20. When you have Jehoshaphat and Judah and their armies there to see the salvation of the Lord when God delivers them. In Psalm 98.3, you see the, salva- there see, see the salvation of the Lord. And right before the most famous servant song in Isaiah, in Isaiah 52.10, Israel redemption, Israel's redemption, the whole world will see the salvation of the Lord. So Simeon here, filled with even the language of the Old Testament, talks about actually seeing the salvation of the Lord. It's tangible. You can actually look at it. It's not hidden in the shadows. It's not cryptic. Right? It's not like, oh, it was fulfilled, but nobody ever saw it. You just have to believe it. No. God proves His faithfulness 
and puts it on display so that people will see it and there's no mistake about it. They will see the salvation of the Lord. And he saw it, literally, in his arms. And of course, this goes back to the idea that Messiah is salvation personified, isn't he? The gospel is a message, right? It has words, it has content, content, right? It calls upon you to believe something. But you could also say, as I've, I've said previously, that Jesus himself is the gospel. He is it personified, right? Because forgiveness of sins, we cannot get that throughout, without Christ and his work. We cannot have righteousness without having someone else's, who is Christ. We cannot have eternal life without someone who has it, and that's Christ. We cannot inherit the kingdom, be prepared before the foundation of the world, without being united to the king. Who's the king? That's Christ. See the point? See the picture? Right? Jesus is salvation. That he's prepared in the presence of all the peoples. Right? God has put it, prepared it, so that the whole world can testify and bear witness to it that the fact that God is faithful. And that they have seen it and that the whole world, if they want to look, can find it. And notice what he says here. A light of, for revelation to the Gentiles. Isaiah 42, verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Isaiah 49 Verse 6, he says, It is too light of a thing, a light of thing, that you shall be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Those two verses are in the middle of two of Isaiah's servant songs, which we've already discussed, is about who? The Messiah. The salvation of non-Jewish people is in the Old Testament. It's not as maybe prevalent, but it's there. How many times does God have to say something in order for us to take it seriously? Once, right? That's it. Once and we're accountable. He says it more than once. You could also check out Isaiah 52.10. And uh, Isaiah 60, verse 3, for Gentiles coming to the light, coming to salvation. The salvation of Gentiles is in the Old Testament. Simeon knows his Bible, and he declares it, and he connects it to the Messiah. And what's the second half of this verse here in verse 32? And what? Glory to your people, Israel. Someone turn to, uh, can I call on somebody to read a verse? I'll have a volunteer. Just raise your hand before I tell you what it is. Just have faith. It's not going to be too bad. Someone? Anybody can have a volunteer? Thank you, Michael. Isaiah 45, verse 25. And I need one other volunteer, so somebody else is going to have to read. Thank you, brother. Brad, uh, Isaiah 46, verse 13. Isaiah 45, 25. Yes, please. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Thank you. Brad, do you have 46, 13? Yes. Go for it. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. Okay, so we have a light for the Gentiles, right? A light of salvation that they could go to to be saved. 
And it will bring glory to his people, Israel. Both things clearly in the scriptures that Simeon brings out in this song, in this prophetic song. Any questions or comments on that before we move on? All right. 33 through 35. Time is getting away from us. Who would like to read that? And his father and his mother marveled at what he had said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And the sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from my hearts may be revealed. Thank you, brother. Okay. So the same word marveled that's used when the shepherd shares the message of the Messiah. Remember that? Remember when it talks about how the people marvel when the shepherds share that message about the Messiah? It's the same word here. Joseph and Mary are marveling, right? I mean, they know who Jesus is, right? They're aware of that, but it just kind of shows you the human element of the fact that, that even though they know who Jesus is, right, that the message can come and they could still just be wowed by it, right? To be marvel, to marvel at it. Right? So Simeon blesses them, but then he's got a special message to who? Mary. Mary, his, his mother. Interesting that it would be directed to her. Almost like, I don't know, maybe this is just conjecture, but the Spirit made sure that directed to Mary because, you know, Joseph wouldn't be around to see what was next. In any case, what is this child appointed for? For the fall and rise of who? Many in Israel. The word here is uh, kamai, or kamai, according to the Greek English lexicon, it means to exist, with the implication of having been established uh, and thus set for continuity and purpose. Basically, you could say to exist, or to exist for, or to be set. So basically, Jesus exists... For the rising and falling of many in Israel. What's this mean? It means that he's not going to be accepted by all in Israel. But instead will largely be rejected. Right? Those who reject the Messiah, no matter what their position in society, will fall. And those who receive the Messiah, Messiah, no matter what their position in society will rise. Right? So even then, Simeon is aware of and tells Mary ahead of time, Jesus is going, he's appointed so that many in Israel, although they be high, will fall. And And Jesus, though many be low, will cause many to rise. Which is exactly what he does, right? Who does Jesus bring down? The proud, the self-righteous, and who does he exalt? The humble, the sinner. Yep. For a sign that is opposed. This Greek word here is important. It's simeon. It means, according to the lexicon again, an event which is regarded as having some special meaning. So a sign... It's like basically God setting up something, an event or something that's significant, and it has a meaning behind it. 
Jesus is a sign that is opposed. So he's a sign that most people in Israel are going to oppose, not accept. And we're going to skip what's in the parentheses here for just a second. We're going to move on here. So that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus is a sign that is opposed so that the thoughts and intentions of people's hearts will be revealed. Jesus sets up the Messiah to expose what people really are. How appropriate is that? I would venture to say, men, that Jesus is still a sign opposed. So that the thoughts and intentions of people's heart in this day, Jesus reveals it, right? You ever notice how people will talk about God? Like, you know, some people will talk about, except for some people in parts of the world, God just means nothing. But people will talk about God a lot. But as soon as you name the name of Jesus, what happens? He's a good prophet. Or Jesus is just some, you know, faraway person or genie. But when you insist on his lordship, oh, people's hearts come right out, don't they? They just spill out through their mouth what they think. And of course, you're going to get sick of me by the time this class is over. Of course, the Old Testament mentioned this, didn't it? Of course it did. Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 4. Psalm 22. Zechariah 13, verse 7. So the striking of the shepherd. Daniel 9, 26. The cutting off of the anointed one. The scriptures beforehand predicted that the Messiah would be rejected. And Simeon's bringing that out right out. Now Israel, they had the appearance of righteousness, didn't they? Right? Remember what we talked about before in the intertestamental period, right? Remember when Antiochus Epiphanes right, tried to destroy right, biblical worship? Right? And the Maccabeans revolted against that and actually won somewhat of their independence. That looked pretty good from the outside, didn't it? Yeah, we're going to preserve the worship of the Lord. One of the unintended consequences of that was a group of people that were so devoted to keeping the law, they put laws on top of laws to make sure you wouldn't even get close to breaking God's law. And it created a self-righteousness. It created a false hope. It created a false salvation. That you could earn favor with God through your own law-keeping. And Jesus came to expose that. John 1, verse 11, right? He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Let's go back to the parentheses. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. What is Simeon talking about here? The cross. Did you guys hear that? Would you agree that's what Simeon's talking about? The rejection of Jesus. Now, any mother would, of course, feel, you know, in this culture especially, feel shame for her son being rejected, right? Would feel sorrow for her own son. But this is going to be like a sword that's going to pierce through her own very soul because this rejection 
will ultimately lead in what? The salvation, but the death of her own son. And what mother, what parent couldn't identify with that? Anything else before we get to Anna? I think Mary and Joseph didn't actually know what all the Well, that might be true, right? That they didn't know what to expect. Uh, even though, you know, the Lord pretty much told them what to expect. Right? That's the thing. Now, God told them what to expect. But yeah, how much, how, uh, like so many of us, does the Lord tell us what to expect and we just kind of just miss it until we actually get in it? We're like, oh, that's what you meant. This is what you meant that all men will hate me for Jesus' name's sake. This is what you meant? Oh, I thought that was further down the line. No, it's right now. We don't, sometimes we don't know. But yeah, maybe Joseph and Mary didn't know. Especially when Mary goes with, with her, uh, I think it's with Jesus' sisters trying to bring him home because, you know, Jesus has just gone a little bit too far. He's just, a, you, you, Jesus, you need to come home and just calm down. You're, you're getting a little carried away. You're getting a little extreme. Any other thoughts? So that, uh, there, there are no um, it, just how how true it is. Um, you know, it, it, he doesn't just paint this rosy picture of okay, the Messiah's here and he's going to be great. But uh, no, you know, there's the, the truth that you know God God's going to deal with with sin and and there's going to be trouble. Yeah, yeah, there is going to be trouble, right? And, and, it, and it results in something that he said all along that was going to happen, but that they don't understand until it actually happens. Right? All right. Uh, good point, brother. Um, 36 through 38. I'll read this. There was a prophetess, then there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So this is Anna. She's a prophetess. She is uh, anointed by the Holy Spirit to be this. Um, notice, interestingly, what tribe that she comes from. Asher, this is one of the purported so-called lost tribes, if you were. If you recall, in biblical history, Assyria came and conquered the northern ten tribes. Right? But but obviously there were survivors. Obviously God preserved some of them because we have one right here. Right? We have one right here from Asher. Just interesting point. She's advanced in years. She's very old. Now, the text could be interpreted a couple different ways here. You could interpret it like um, the ESV and the 95 version of the New American Standard and the New Revised Standard Version, that she lives with her husband from when she's a virgin, right? So she comes into the home, consummates the marriage, she's married seven years, then he dies, and then she continues to live as a widow until now her old age of 84, or you can interpret like the Christian Standard Bible and the Net Bible that 
She gets married, right? She's married seven years. Her husband dies. And then she lives an additional 84 years as a widow, making her very, very old. Over 100, as, as it's as be, it's been said by scholars. Not sure which way to go with it, but at least the text tells us that she's very old, right? And what does her life consist of? Yeah, serving God, right? She takes her time and she devotes it to the Lord. She gives it in fasting and in praying. And in the and how often does she do this? Nine day. Nine day. She doesn't depart from the temple. She either lives there somewhere or she's there basically every time the doors open. Uh, to paraphrase one scholar said that. I think it was maybe Leon Morris who said that. And what's she waiting for? What's she fasting and praying night and day about? The context kind of lets us know. Redemption of Jerusalem. She's waiting for the Messiah. And maybe she hears what Simeon says. Maybe the Lord reveals to her, like did to Simeon, like, hey, there's the Messiah. She comes up, and at that very hour, at the same time Jesus is at the temple... And while Simeon's praising God and prophesying, she goes around, she gives thanks to God for fulfilling her prayers, and she begins to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption. So she shares the good news, right? She shares the good news that the redemption of Jerusalem, the Messiah, is here. What an example. Our message is what? The redemption of Jerusalem did come. And he did redeem all those who would turn from their sin and trust in him. And guess what? Again, we are like Simeon and Anna. We're waiting for the Messiah too. Which should motivate us in our sharing of the good news, saying that he's coming. He has come, just as God promised he would. You need to turn and submit to him. And you will inherit what the son inherits. And he will be your loving king because you don't want it the other way around. You don't want Jesus to be appointed for your fall. You want to be appointed for your rising. Amen? Thoughts or questions on any of that, guys? Next week, the Magi. Let's pray.